0: Welcome to the Make an After school Cool podcast, the link between research, practice, and theory for those interested in the activities youth are involved with during non-school hours. The Make an After school Cool podcast is produced by Case for Kids, the Division of Harris County Department of Education, and I'm your host, Mike Wilson. For the past 70 years, the month of May has been dedicated to raising mental health awareness, and is widely celebrated as Mental Health Awareness Month. Organizations like the Center for Disease Control, better known as the CDC, Mental Health America, and NAMNI take this time to spread knowledge and fight stigmas surrounding mental health and well-being. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, this week's guest on the an After School Cool podcast is Dr. Maisha Claiborne. Dr. Claiborne is an author, TEDx speaker, podcast host of the Black Mind Garden podcast, a master practitioner of NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, hypnosis, and the founder of the Mind Remapping Academy. Uh, Dr. Claiborne, thank you so much for being my guest on the Making After School Cool podcast. Your expertise certainly is timely as we celebrate and recognize Mental Health Awareness Month. So how are things going on your end?
1: You know what? Um, my thank, thank. First of all, thank you for oh, inviting me on the podcast. I, I am a fan. I do like the podcast. <laughs> um, things on my end are are busy. They are going well. I mean, there's a lot to do. May, as we know, is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm very committed to to not only that, but the awareness of. Of trauma and trauma-informed uh, practices and communication, and so there's no shortage of teaching and education to be done in this in this field.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you've earned an impressive list of credentials. What motivated you to get in the field of assisting and empowering others?
1: Well, I mean, my background is 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 in medicine. I'm a family doc by training, and uh, and I practiced integrative medicine, which is the marriage of sort of Western style and more holistic practices and i and what i most loved about when i was in clinical practice was actually educating and empowering my patients and it was because you know when we are educated and we when we know we're at the source of our well-being then we can actually take the actions and to prevent illness and so it's the same thing in what i do now like what motivates me is having people be at the source of their lives at the source of the changes they want to make at the source of their own beliefs so that they can create the kind of relationships and we can be the kind of parents that we want Um, sometimes we think that we're we're stuck with what we were taught when we grew up but the truth is we always have a choice and we always have access to being able to shift our mindset when we um, are aware that we can do so
0: yeah, you know, it's interesting. Just a little personal journey. I've just got diagnosed with um, type two diabetes, mm-hmm. and so I'm changing my eating habits. I mean, I'm doing a lot of other stuff. In the past, I was just scarfing all kinds of stuff. But like you said, it's uh, once you switch that mental aspect on how you look at things, then all of a sudden you realize things are a whole lot easier mm-hmm. than uh, you probably once thought it was. Now, you've used the term cognitive shortcuts. Can you explain it and how it is present in many of our lives as well as our kids' lives?
1: Absolutely. So when we refer to, when I refer to cognitive shortcuts, it's it's sort of referred to how our brain takes the path of least resistance. Our brains are sort of inherently lazy. And the reason that is is because... We have so much information coming at us at all times. As, f- as a matter of fact, 11 million bits of information per second. So if you can imagine 11 million toothpicks just falling out of the sky every second, until, you know, your hand would be prickly. And our brain can only manage so much of that information. Uh, to be specific 134 bits of information per second so from 11 million to 134 that's a lot that's a big gap so it has to chunk it down into manageable shortcuts which is what cognitive shortcuts is and it does that by filtering it it generalizes it it distorts and it deletes information right so we're always then filtering information through the filters of our upbringing, through our past experience, through our environment, through our um, language, and so this this is, of course, how it's present present in us as adults. Is if you can imagine, we grew up inheriting the beliefs of our parents, um, learning the things that we're taught, and and then we pass these things down to our children. So even in our kids, now our kids are not necessarily born with these cognitive, I mean, they're born with cognitive shortcuts in the way that of course, the brain can only process so much information, but you know, the first 10 years of life, they're practically sponges anyway. And so as they get older, just as as, as with us, they have to create these filters in order to process what's going on around them. So in terms of with our kids, they inherit our beliefs and that those become their shock cognitive shortcuts. They inherit the beliefs that they learn in classrooms from teachers, from friends, from social from media, social media. And those become some of the filters through which information is processed. And I think as, as adults, as caretakers of, of children, um, parents and a parent adjacent, we have to be mindful of the kind of of influence that we have because we are in effect helping to create those cognitive shortcuts. And we wanna create ones that are empowering because the fact of the matter is our brain is gonna do it anyway. So if we say that we are at the source of it, how can we empower more empowering shortcuts for our kids?
0: (laughs) Now you mentioned mental filters. Um, Is it possible for us to change our mental filters? And use them in a way to make us more productive and successful.
1: There are filters you absolutely cannot change, right? So there are filters your pa- your, the, the, your your past experiences, is your past experience, the past, the past, it happened. So that's a filter you cannot change. Now you can change the way you see the past, right? So that's a way that you can expand that filter. Um, the filters of belief and attitude. Those are filters that can be changed. The filters of environment can be shifted and changed. So yes, there are many filters that can be changed. And um, in terms of environment, I mean, that's the, the easiest filter to change. But in terms of belief, I think we have to understand what our beliefs are in order to be able to change them and to know that beliefs can be shifted and to understand where the belief comes from so that we can actually be curious and question, is that actually true for us now.
0: Now, I know a lot of times you know you speak on past experiences and some some of it may be tragic, some of it's positive. What strategies would you suggest to help people move away from the victimization mentality?
1: Wow, that's uh it's it's such a great question and it is there's a lot of ways that I could approach that. The first I think is understanding that while there are cases where we people are victimized that and, and to honor the space of, okay, if a trauma has happened that has had you be victimized um, to, to honor the space of that trauma and also to ask yourself, okay, now that's happened, how can I proactively heal from that and prevent further harm from happening? So there's two sides of it. We can't just ignore our traumas. Like, that doesn't work. Um, so it's, you know, for someone who has had a trauma in the past, you can't just say, get over it. That doesn't work, right? Stop being a victim. That doesn't work. We need to look at that trauma and then look at how the the person has to make a decision, too, by the way. The person who has had that trauma has to be willing to make a decision to Say, okay, I'm ready to heal from that. At the end of the day, our mind, our the the subconscious mind's job is to protect us and it will repress and hold on to and 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 push down negative emotions like fear and anger and resentment. It'll push those down until we're actually ready for them to be resolved. So when I when you say, you know, to to help. To, to how to help people move away from victim and victimization mentality. I think the person has to be aware that that is the space that they're occupying. And then second has to be willing to look at where can I be at the source of my life rather than being at the effect of it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I was in high school years ago, uh, my senior class, we ended up having uh, a group of students who passed away in a car accident. Mm. And I remember when we returned to school that following weekend, um, where our school was located, ironically, right across the street was a cemetery and uh, my, da- my desk was in the, in the back. And so I just happened to be looking out the window, just looking at the cemetery. And I was thinking to myself, it's ironic that this is a place that helps people prepare for their future. Mm-hmm. But then right across the street, there's a cemetery, which is, you know, ultimately yeah. our, our, our demise. And I think the teacher noticed me glancing out of the window. And I think she just assumed that I was going through some kind of traumatic episode because one of the students that passed was in, in that particular class. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I really wasn't. You know, I was just kind of thinking of the irony of the of the setting, right. but I think sometimes when we, you know, look at kids and we know that they're going through a traumatic experience, especially when you're young and you're having to deal with death, I think you kind of sometimes reach out and maybe over-exaggerate the fact that they're going through some trauma, or maybe at that particular moment they're not ready to talk about it. I remember later that day, because he was on our basketball team, and when we went to basketball practice, I think it all hit us, and yeah, they had a counselor in and, you know, they were talking with us and, and and things like that, but yeah, I think for practitioners who work with young people, and even parents at times, I think sometimes there's two responses. One, when you know the the child is going through a traumatic experience of just ignoring it and say hey get Mm -hmm. over it you know Mm -hmm. and then the other is almost overcompensate you know and not necessarily let the child um dwell with their feelings and then when they're ready you know be able to share and talk about it uh, I think things like Mental Awareness Month, I think now more people are recognizing you know mental illness exists.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, be it a celebrity or someone we know, I think we we've experienced people who've had some some mental issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's helped a little bit, but I think we still have have a ways to go to uh, try to understand how do we treat, how do we recognize, and what's the best steps to go from there?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that, You know to to your point this space of you know ignoring versus overcompensating one of the things that i think is useful for you know especially adults i think anyone but adults specifically managing with children is to just continue to let them know that when they're ready to talk about it that you're there and give them that space to process it and you know also because because again we don't want to let it go too far where they think you just don't care. So it's just like that showing up and that being there and that, but but when you do have the the kids like me, like I was very much an introvert and I processed inward where, and I had a a parent who was uh, very on the anxious side. So she would overcompensate Um, that can be anxiety provoking for the child. So it is, it is, it's a tricky balance because, you know, of course as as caretakers, we want to be there for our kids, but it can be overwhelming when um, there's always sort of the, are you okay? Are you, what can I do? Talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's, yeah. we can't force our children or anyone for that matter who experiences a, a, a loss, traumatic or otherwise. I think all, most, all losses are pretty much traumatic, but, um, you know, who experiences that kind of trauma to, to talk to people right, before right. they're ready.
0: Now, um, you've described the traditional way of goal setting as broken. So what would you recommend is a better way to establish the right kinds of goals?
1: Well, I think that it's, I think broken is probably a strong word. um, uh, I think that um, the the traditional way of setting goals is very nonspecific. And because of that, a lot of times people don't reach their goals. So they they may say things like, oh, I want more of this, like more money, or I want, you know, I want to get a good grade if we're talking about kids, or I want, you know, they, the, the, the description of it is very abstract and the problem with that is that you know $1 is more money than you had a minute ago. So when you're very non-specific what what the world produces or what the unconscious mind looks for to match that goal is very non-specific. And so um a lot of times I think that when people are setting goals they don't actually know specifically what they want. And so one of the things the questions that I ask when I'm teaching goal setting is what is the goal specifically? What is the, the specific thing that you want? What does it look like, sound like, and feel like? How will you know when you got that goal? Right. So then what that does is it actually creates an internal picture in the mind of what it looks like when someone gets the goal, like an evidence procedure. And then you can have a very specific goal by a very specific time, and that's the other mistake that people don't make when they're setting goals. It's it's like, I wanna I wanna have better grades. That's my goal, right? So that's very non-specific and it doesn't have a time to it. I'll give you an example. My son, um, I love talking about you know the things I do with my son. So my son, he uh, runs non-competitive track at this point. He's eight years old. And he, um, the first run that he did in the fall, he ran the mile, it's, it's a mile, it's a midweek mile is what they call it. He ran the mile and it was like 15 minutes, right? And so I was like, okay, great. You ran this mile in 15 minutes. How do you feel about that? And he says, oh, you know, I feel okay. And you know, I think I could do faster. And I said, well, how, how long is it that you wanna take to run that mile? And he said, 10 minutes, mm-hmm. right? I said, you, "You think you can do it in 10 minutes?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Okay. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan?" He says, "Well, yeah. You know, we do our—they do their kilometer. Kids practice on Mondays, and he gave gave me the plan. And so the second um, the second race, he didn't he didn't achieve his goal. So I asked him, "Well, okay. So what happened?" And he said, "Well, you know, I was running with my friends, and and they stopped, and I stopped to to." You know, to make sure that they were gonna get across the line. And and so we talked about the plan for the next one. He says, yeah, I really wanna run this mile in 10 minutes. So the third race, lo and behold, he runs the mile in 10 minutes. So I said, oh, high five, you got your goal. He says, yeah. He says, well, you know, next time I wanna run the mile in nine minutes. It was only a month later. I was like, and, I, and to myself, I thought, that's a lot of minutes to take off in one month but I said, okay, you got a plan for this. And he was very specific about this nine minutes by next month, by the next time. So you see what I'm saying? Like he's, it's the, the goal is he's moving toward what he wants. He's very specific about nine miles and nine minutes. And he's very specific about the time in which he wants to do it. And so, you know, we, he comes up with his plan on how to train and and how to how to do the thing. And then lo and behold, the next month, he runs the mile in nine minutes. And so I say all that to say when when you're very specific about what you want, especially with our kids, I think this is just really important with, with kids to teach them early how to set goals. When they're very specific and they have a time that's that's attached to it and they know what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like to achieve that goal and the evidence, then they're able to create the plan in order to get to that goal.
0: You know, that's, that's that's so true. And, and thank you for sharing that story. I have one very similar, you know, I've changed and have adopted this healthier lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I was going to do in the Houston area, there's a lot of parks and, and people jog around the parks. So it's like, yeah, I'm going I'm to go into jogging. And I applaud him from doing a mile because a mile is pretty a pretty great distance. It's- and so, yeah, I have invested in some running shoes. I planned out my day in the evenings I'm going to go and run at this particular park and so you know that first day I went and again the park to do the entire lap is about a mile a mile and a half Mm -hmm. Uh, I realized probably maybe a quarter of the way in that I'm not going to make a jogging this entire mile let's start off walking. (laughs) <laughs> Let's just try to finish it before we go. We move into the yeah. the jogging. So I agree, having specifics, you know, knowing where your starting point is, mm-hmm. gradually improving if that's something that you seek. So yeah, I think he, he he really. I don't know if he consciously did it or subconsciously did it, but uh, he definitely established some realistic some realistic goals. Yes. It, and unfortunately, I think when people set some goals and it's something that they could eventually attain. But they make it so large, and mm-hmm. if they don't initially succeed, they give up the entire go.
1: Yes, and that's they kind screwed. of a
0: tragedy when when some, something like that happens. I know, you know my my daughter; she's mm-hmm. going to be a senior next year, mm-hmm. and you know every time she meets some family members and so on, they always ask, you know, what what's your plan for after graduation? I and I think it's creating a little anxiety. Because she really hadn't thought, I mean, she knows she's going to college. She doesn't right. know what she want to major in. Mm-hmm. She kind of knows the, the quality of life she wants. And I've always tell her, start with that. If you mm-hmm. know the quality of life you want, then you can kind of backtrack on, okay, what is going to lead you to this quality of life. When I was younger, I've always wanted to take vacations with my family. We used to always visit grandparents. That was was our vacation. And I'm like, no, I want to take my my children on vacation. So that was my big goal. Now, how I was going to be able to establish that Take mm-hmm. a little longer to to uh, process, but at the end of the day, that was my overlaying goal. Will this type of occupation, will this type of job, will this will allow me to take my kids to Disney, to amusement park, to visit, you know, historical markers, those types of things. Those were uh, a big ultimate goal of mine. So yeah, I think you know, establishing a realistic, concrete, and then kind of filling in the steps along the way is, is an awesome plan
1: yeah i want to speak to what you were saying about when when we sometimes um when we don't reach that goal and and then giving it up altogether and i think that that has to do with our relationship to this word failure and how we personalize that so much and to understand that you know failure is really just feedback right there's no there's no such thing as a person is a failure. You know, like a person cannot be a a person is a person. So I think that when when we start to say things like, "Oh, I am a failed or failure," or "I, you know," or "I'm I I failed, I failed," as, as opposed to uh, there is a failure of performance, right? When we start to take it outside of our characteristics or our personality, and we really start to see this word of failure as a guide. Like, oh, I failed to meet this goal. That means there was something missing that maybe I missed in preparation or that I didn't think about that that created a gap between what I wanted and what I actually did. And when we teach our kids, number one, that, I mean, to, to fail at certain things is part of life right? It's, it's part of life. And when we use that as sort of like a GPS, okay, well, what, what is that feedback? What was missing? Then we can, we can actually close that gap and reach those goals. So I just think it's so important to reframe failure for ourselves, particularly because I think kids inherit what, the conversations that we take on. When we reframe failure for ourselves, Then we also reframe it for our kids because the way we approach it with our kids is different and i think so it's it's so good what you what you're you know teaching your daughter like start with what the end in mind like what is it that you what kind of lifestyle do you want and i'd add to that like what is it that you love to do i think that you know in the x gen um, the x generation we have um we, we have chosen career fields based on either the lifestyle or what our parents wanted or expected, or being a legacy, right? Or being a first gen generation out of a particular circumstance and not always for what we also enjoy and what we're good at. So, you know, I think it was Jack Canfield. He talks in his book, The um, Success Principles. There's one of the success principles is, is discover what you're good at, discover what you enjoy, and then discover how to make money with those things right, <laughs> right? right, right, right. And those that is a principle that i have carried with me for all of my career and it, and i think what it does is it helps to avoid like getting in a career for 20 years and then discovering like you're miserable right, even though right. you have the lifestyle mm-hmm. and then not even to start all over again
0: yeah and so, i do kind of try to plant the seed that at the end of the day i mean money's nice but don't chase the money find something that you enjoy and what you'll realize at the end of the day is going to be fulfilling and you'll still be able to live a a productive and and happy life yeah And so you know i I do try to tell them that i try to take some of the pressure off i know it's it's already pressure Mm -hmm. Um, but you know enjoy these stages and enjoy these stages of Mm -hmm. self-discovery and i told you know each generation we've been blessed in our family has done better than the previous generation. Mm -hmm. Not not that we had a plan, it's just that we've always supported each other. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you feel comfortable in having that support system, even if you don't initially succeed, because I've always said, in my opinion, failure doesn't happen until you quit, or you learn from it and you realize that's not what your purpose was anyway. So it's not necessarily a failure. Uh, It's just you're sort of on the wrong track. Uh, Which is a good segue to my next question. We've often been told that positive affirmations can result in positive outcomes. However, you suggest that they are not always effective. So what would you say are better ways uh, of discovering positive thinking and better ways to use them?
1: Well, so let me just distinguish why sometimes they're not effective. I think that... Um, positive affirmations are, can be very effective, but when there is a, um, an, incongruence, meaning like a mismatch between what we believe and what we say, um, then it takes a long time for the affirmation to take effect. So then what we must do is to look at if we don't believe what we're saying, what is it that we actually do believe? And what is the source of that belief? When did we come to believe that belief, right? Like what and what belief did we inherit from our parents, from society, from um, our education that had us that has us not believe, say that we could achieve a certain thing or that we could be a certain thing? And once we get to the source of the limiting belief that's that's you know having us come to this wall of you know, we don't believe the positive affirmation that we're saying, once we get to the source of that belief, looking at how we shift and change that. And a lot of times that requires, you know, sometimes that can be done in journaling, sometimes that can be talked out with, a, a, a you know, a family member, a good friend, but sometimes that, that work needs to be done with a therapist or like a coach or someone like that, someone who can see a perspective that you cannot see, right? And so, you know, I work often with my son with his belief system and what I and I often listen for when limiting beliefs are coming up and then looking at how what, you know what how did you come to believe that? What makes you think that way specifically? And then you can challenge those beliefs. And then that that way what what makes the positive affirmation effective is that you actually believe the thing right (laughs) Right? right, so then when you shift the belief then you say the affirmation and the and the mind is like oh yes and then you're motivated to do the actions that lead to whatever the affirmation or whatever the goal or outcome is yeah
0: and i think the unique thing sometimes I, i like surrounding myself with positive thinking people Mm-hmm. And I recall when I was younger and I really didn't know a lot about affirmations and self-beliefs and, you know, setting and, and and things like that. But I was tall for my age all the way up until high school. So in junior high, I was over six foot tall. You know, I played basketball, I played sports. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to be a pro. You know, <laughs> that was my thought. And I quickly realized that I stopped growing and that probably was not going to happen. And so, um, but it also gave me the opportunity to network with some awesome people. Mm -hmm. Uh, It gave me the opportunity to start thinking in terms of seeing myself as a college student. So there were some other things that came along with it that was beyond just quote unquote, being the professional athlete that I saw on TV. So in one end, even though I didn't, that was technically an unrealistic goal. But then on the other end, having a goal that made me stretch introduced me to some other people that I probably would never have met in the uh, prior. So, yeah, Yeah. there's some definitely some positive things that goes along with it. Uh, Before we close,
1: do you have any final thoughts? I think that, you know, it's just important to understand that. we listen through filters, we speak through filters. Those filters are are made up of, of all of our beliefs and past experiences, all of which we can begin to shift to expand ourselves. And I think it's, it's useful to when we understand that not only do we speak and listen through filters, but so do other people, that we can resolve any uh, type of conflict by understanding or prevent conflict by understanding that people are, um, are speaking through and listening through filters and that they have their own beliefs and we have our own beliefs and we can respect each other's models of the world and continue to expand ourselves and our own listening. I think that's probably what I would leave people with.
0: All right, great. Well, uh, I'll probably extend some invitations to you in the future. I enjoy talking with you. It's like this past 30 minutes have gone by extremely fast. And there's so many different things that have popped into my head. So I'll probably extend a few more uh, invitations to you. And we can maybe have an ongoing series. So I appreciate you taking some time. And thank you so much for being our guest today on the Make an After School Cool Podcast.
1: Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure being here.
0: Thank you for joining me for this preview of Episode 118 of the Making After School Cool podcast, which featured my discussion with Dr. Myesha Claiborne, in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month. Please listen to this episode and future episodes as we continue to discuss the issues relevant to the out-of-school time field.